Chapter Six of *The Virginian*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Virginian* by Owen Wister. Chapter Six. Emily. My personage was a hen, and she lived at the Sunk Creek Ranch. Judge Henry's ranch was notable for several luxuries. He had milk, for example. In those days his brother ranchmen had thousands of cattle very often, but not a drop of milk, save the condensed variety. Therefore they had no butter. The judge had plenty. Next rarest to butter and milk in the cattle country were eggs. But my host had chickens. Whether this was because he had followed cock-fighting in his early days, or whether it was due to Mrs. Henry, I cannot say. I only know that when I took a meal elsewhere I was likely to find nothing but the eternal sow-belly, beans, and coffee, while at Sunk Creek the omelet and the custard were frequent. The passing traveller was glad to tie his horse to the fence here, and sit down to the judge's table, for its fame was as wide as Wyoming. It was an oasis in the territory's desolate bill of fare. The long fences of Judge Henry's home ranch began upon Sunk Creek, soon after that stream emerged from its canyon through the Bow Leg. It was a place always well cared for by the owner, even in the days of his bachelorhood. The placid regiments of cattle lay in the cool of the cottonwoods by the water, or slowly moved among the sagebrush, feeding upon the grass that in those forever departed years was plentiful and tall. The steers came fat off his unenclosed range, and fattened still more in his large pasture, while his small pasture, a field some eight miles square, was for several seasons given to the judge's horses, and over this ample space there played and prospered the good colts which he raised from Paladin, his imported stallion. After he married, I have been assured that his wife's influence became visible in and about the house at once. Shade trees were planted, flowers attempted, and to the chickens was added the much more troublesome turkey. I, the visitor, was pressed into service when I arrived, green from the east. I took hold of the farmyard and began building a better chicken house, while the judge was off creating meadowland in his gray and yellow wilderness. When any cowboy was unoccupied, he would lounge over to my neighborhood and silently regard my carpentering. Those cowpunchers bore names of various denominations. There was Honey Wiggin, there was Nebraska, and Dollar Bill, and Chalkeye. And they came from farms and cities, from Maine and from California. But the romance of American adventure had drawn them all alike to this great playground of young men, and in their courage, their generosity, and their amusement at me they bore a close resemblance to each other. Each one would silently observe my achievements with the hammer and the chisel. Then he would retire to the bunkhouse, and presently I would overhear laughter. But this was only in the morning. In the afternoon, on many days of the summer which I spent at the Sunk Creek Ranch, I would go shooting, or ride up toward the entrance of the canyon, and watch the men working on the irrigation ditches. Pleasant systems of water running in channels were being led through the soil, and there was a sound of rippling here and there among the yellow grain. The green thick alfalfa grass waved almost, it seemed, of its own accord, for the wind never blew, and when at evening the sun lay against the plain, 
The rift of the canyon was filled with a violet light, and the Bowleg Mountains became transfigured with hues of floating and unimaginable color. The sun shone in a sky where never a cloud came, and noon was not too warm nor the dark too cool. And so for two months I went through these pleasant uneventful days, improving the chickens, an object of mirth, living in the open air, and basking in the perfection of content. I was justly styled a tenderfoot. Mrs. Henry had, in the beginning, endeavored to shield me from this humiliation, but when she found that I was inveterate in laying my inexperience of Western matters bare to all the world, begging to be enlightened upon rattlesnakes, prairie dogs, owls, blue and willow grouse, sage hens, how to rope a horse or tighten the front cinch of my saddle, and that my spirit soared into enthusiasm at the mere sight of so ordinary an animal as a white-tailed deer, she let me rush about with my firearms, and made no further effort to stave off the ridicule that my blunders perpetually earned from the ranch hands, her own humorous husband, and any chance visitor who stopped for a meal or stayed the night. I was not called by my name after the first feeble etiquette due to a stranger in his first few hours had died away. I was known simply as the Tenderfoot. I was introduced to the neighborhood, a circle of eighty miles, as the Tenderfoot. It was thus that Balaam, the maltreater of horses, learned to address me when he came a two days journey to pay a visit. And it was this name and my notorious helplessness that bid fair to end what relations I had with the Virginian. For when Judge Henry ascertained that nothing could prevent me from losing myself, that it was not uncommon for me to saunter out after breakfast with a gun, and in thirty minutes cease to know north from south, he arranged for my protection. He detailed an escort for me, and the escort was once more the trustworthy man. The poor Virginian was taken from his work and his comrades, and set to playing nurse for me. And for a while this humiliation ate into his untamed soul. It was his lugubrious lot to accompany me in my rambles, preside over my blunders, and save me from calamitously passing into the next world. He bore it in courteous silence, except when speaking was necessary. He would show me the lower ford, which I could never find for myself, generally mistaking a quicksand for it. He would tie my horse properly. He would recommend me not to shoot my rifle at a white-tailed deer in the particular moment that the outfit wagon was passing behind the animal on the further side of the brush. There was seldom a day that he was not obliged to hasten and save me from sudden death or from ridicule, which is worse. Yet never once did he lose his patience, and his gentle, slow voice and apparently lazy manner remained the same, whether we were sitting at lunch together, or up in the mountain during a hunt, or whether he was bringing me back my horse which had run away because I had again forgotten to throw the reins over his head and let them trail. "'He'll always stand if you do that,' the Virginian would say. "'See how my hoss stays right quiet, yonder." After such admonition he would say no more to me, but this tame nursery business was assuredly gall to him, for though utterly a man in countenance and in his self-possession and incapacity to be put at a loss, he was still boyishly proud of his wild calling, 
and wore his leather straps and jingled his spurs with obvious pleasure. His tiger limberness and his beauty were rich with unabated youth, and that force which lurked beneath his surface must often have curbed his intolerance of me. In spite of what I knew must be his opinion of me, the tenderfoot, my liking for him grew, and I found his silent company more and more agreeable. That he had spells of talking I had already learned at Medicine Bow, but his present taciturnity might almost have effaced this impression had I not happened to pass by the bunk-house one evening after dark, when Honey Wiggin and the rest of the cowboys were gathered inside it. That afternoon the Virginian and I had gone duck-shooting. We had found several in a beaver dam, and I had killed two as they sat close together. But they floated against the breastwork of sticks out in the water some four feet deep, where the escaping current might carry them down the stream. The judge's red setter had not accompanied us, because she was expecting a family. "'We don't want her along anyways,' the cowpuncher had explained to me. "'She runs around mighty irresponsible.' and she'll stand a prairie dog bout as often as she'll stand a bird. She's a trifling animal. My anxiety to own the ducks caused me to pitch into the water with all my clothes on, and subsequently crawl out a slippery, triumphant, weltering heap. The Virginian's serious eyes had rested upon this spectacle of mud, but he expressed nothing as usual. They ain't overly good eaten he observed, tying the birds to his saddle. They're divers. Divers, I exclaimed. Why didn't they dive? I reckon they was young ones and had an experience. Well, I said, crestfallen, but attempting to be humorous, I did the diving myself. But the Virginian made no comment. He handed me my double-barreled English gun, which I was about to leave deserted on the ground behind me, and we rode home in our usual silence, the mean little white-breasted, sharp-billed divers dangling from his saddle. It was in the bunk-house that he took his revenge. As I passed, I heard his gentle voice silently achieving some narrative to an attentive audience, and just as I came by the open window, where he sat on his bed in shirt and drawers, his back to me, I heard his concluding words and the hat on his head was the one mark showed you he weren't a snappin' turtle. The anecdote met with instantaneous success, and I hurried away into the dark. The next morning I was occupied with the chickens. Two hens were fighting to sit on some eggs that a third was daily laying, and which I did not want hatched, and for the third time I had kicked Emily off seven potatoes she had rolled together and was determined to raise I know not what sort of family from. She was shrieking about the hen-house as the Virginian came in to observe, I suspect, what I might be doing now that could be useful for him to mention in the bunk-house. He stood a while and at length said, We lost our best rooster when Mrs. Henry came to live here. I paid no attention. He was a right elegant Dominicer, he continued. I felt a little riled about the snapping turtle, and showed no interest in what he was saying, but continued my functions among the hens. This unusual silence of mine seemed to elicit unusual speech from him. 
"'You see, that rooster, he'd always lived round here when the judge was a bachelor, "'and he never seen no ladies or any persons wearing female garments. "'You ain't got rheumatism, sir?' "'Me? No.' "'I reckon maybe them little odd divers you got damp going after,' he paused. "'Oh, no, not in the least, thank you. "'You seem sort of grave this morning, and I'm certainly glad it ain't them divers.' "'Well, the rooster?' I inquired finally. "'Oh, him! He weren't raised where he could see petticoats. "'Mrs. Henry, she come here from the railroad with the judge after dark.' Next mawnin' early she walked out to view her new home, and the rooster was a-feedin' by the door, and he seen her. Well, sir, he screeched that awful I ran out of the bunkhouse, and he just went over the fence and took down Sunk Creek shoutin' fire right along. He has never come back. "'There's a hen over there now that has no judgment,' I said, indicating Emily. She had got herself outside the house and was on the bars of a corral her vociferations reduced to an occasional squawk. I told him about the potatoes. "'I never knowed her name before,' said he. "'That runaway rooster, he hated her, and she hated him same as she hates them all.' "'I named her myself,' said I, after I came to notice her particularly. "'There's an old maid at home who's charitable and belongs to the cruelty to animals, and she never knows whether she had better cross in front of a street car or wait. I named the hen after her. Does she ever lay eggs? The Virginian had not troubled his head over the poultry. Well, I don't believe she knows how. I think she came near being a rooster. She's sure manly looking, said the Virginian. We had walked toward the corral, and he was now scrutinizing Emily with interest. She was an egregious fowl. She was huge and gaunt, with great yellow beak, and she stood straight and alert in the manner of responsible people. There was something wrong with her tail. It slanted far to one side, one feather in it twice as long as the rest. Feathers on her breast there were none. These had been worn entirely off by her habit of sitting upon potatoes and other rough abnormal objects. And this lent to her appearance an air of being décolleté, singularly at variance with her otherwise prudish ensemble. Her eye was remarkably bright, but somehow it had an outraged expression. It was as if she went about the world perpetually scandalized over the doings that fell beneath her notice. Her legs were blue, long, and remarkably stout. "'She'd ought to wear knickerbockers,' murmured the Virginian. She'd look a heap better in some of them college students. And she'll set on potatoes, you say? She thinks she can hatch out anything. I found her with onions, and last Tuesday I caught her on two balls of soap. In the afternoon the tall cowpuncher and I rode out to get an antelope. After an hour, during which he was completely taciturn, he said, I reckon maybe this here lonesome country ain't been healthy for Emily to live in. It ain't for some humans. Them old trappers in the mountains get skewed in the head mighty often, and talks out loud when nobody's nigher in a hundred miles. Emily has not been solitary, I replied. There are forty chickens here. That's so, said he. It don't explain her. 
He fell silent again, riding beside me, easy and indolent in the saddle. His long figure looked so loose and inert that the swift light spring he made to the ground seemed an impossible feat. He had seen an antelope where I saw none. "'Take a shot yourself,' I urged him as he motioned me to be quick. "'You never shoot when I'm with you.' "'I ain't here for that,' he answered. "'Now you've let him get away on you.' The antelope had, in truth, departed. "'Why,' he said to my protest, "'I can hit them things any day. "'What's your notion as to Emily?' "'I can't account for her,' I replied. "'Well,' he said musingly, and then his mind took one of those particular turns that made me love him. "'Taylor ought to see her. "'She'd be just the schoolmarm for Bear Creek.' "'She's not much like the eating-house lady at Medicine Bow,' I said. He gave a hilarious chuckle. "'No, Emily knows nothing of them joys. "'So you have no notion about her? "'Well, I've got one. "'I reckon maybe she was hatched after a big thunderstorm.' "'In a big thunderstorm!' I exclaimed. "'Yes. Don't you know about them and what they'll do to eggs? "'A big case of lightning and thunder will addle eggs and keep them from hatching. "'And I expect one came along, and all the other eggs of Emily's set didn't hatch out, "'but got plumb addled, and she happened not to get addled that far, "'and so she just managed to make it through. "'But she certainly ain't got a strong head.' "'I fear she has not,' said I. "'Mighty honorable intentions,' he observed. "'If she can't make out to lay anything, "'she wants to hatch something and be a mother anyways.' "'I wonder what relation the law considers "'that a hen is to the chicken she hatched but did not lay,' "'I inquired. "'The Virginian made no reply to this frivolous suggestion.' He was gazing over the wide landscape gravely and with apparent inattention. He invariably saw game before I did, and was off his horse and crouched among the sage while I was still getting my left foot clear of the stirrup. I succeeded in killing an antelope, and we rode home with the head and hindquarters. "'No,' said he, "'it's sure the thunder and not the lonesomeness. How do you like the lonesomeness yourself?' I told him that I liked it. "'I could not live without it now,' he said. "'This has got into my system.' He swept his hand out at the vast space of world. "'I went back home to see my folks once. Mother was dying slow, and she wanted me. I stayed a year. But them Virginia mountains could please me no more. After she was gone, I told my brothers and sisters good-bye.' We like each other well enough, but I reckon I'll not go back. We found Emily seated upon a collection of green California peaches which the judge had brought from the railroad. I don't mind her any more, I said. I'm sorry for her. I've been sorry for her right along, said the Virginian. She does hate the roosters so. And he said that he was making a collection of every class of object which he found her treating as eggs. But Emily's egg industry was terminated abruptly one morning, and her unquestioned energies diverted to a new channel. A turkey, which had been sitting in the root-house, appeared with twelve children. 
and a family of bantams occurred almost simultaneously. Emily was importantly scratching the soil inside Paladin's corral when the bantam tribe of newly born came by down the lane, and she caught sight of them through the bars. She crossed the corral at a run, and intercepted two of the chicks that were trailing somewhat behind their real mamma. These she undertook to appropriate, and assumed a high tone with the bantam, who was smaller, and hence obliged to retreat, with her still numerous family. I interfered, and put matters straight, but the adjustment was only temporary. In an hour I saw Emily immensely busy with two more bantams, leading them about and taking a care of them which I must admit seemed perfectly efficient. And now came the first incident that made me suspect her to be demented. She had proceeded with her changelings behind the kitchen, where one of the irrigation ditches ran under the fence from the hayfield to supply the house with water. Some distance along this ditch, inside the field, were the twelve turkeys in the short, recently cut stubble. Again Emily set off instantly like a deer. She left the dismayed bantams behind her. She crossed the ditch with one jump of her stout blue legs, flew over the grass, and was at once among the turkeys, where, with an instinct of maternity as undiscriminating as it was reckless, she attempted to huddle some of them away. But this other mamma was not a bantam, and in a few moments Emily was entirely routed in her attempt to acquire a new variety of family. This spectacle was witnessed by the Virginian and myself, and it overcame him. He went speechless across to the bunkhouse, by himself, and sat on his bed, while I took the abandoned bantams back to their own circle. I have often wondered what the other fowls thought of all this. Some impression it certainly did make upon them. The notion may seem out of reason to those who have never closely attended to other animals than man, but I am convinced that any community which shares some of our instincts will share some of the resulting feelings, and that birds and beasts have conventions, the breach of which startles them. If there be anything in evolution, this would seem inevitable. At all events, the chicken house was upset during the following several days. Emily disturbed now the bantams and now the turkeys, and several of these latter had died, though I will not go so far as to say that this was the result of her misplaced attentions. Nevertheless, I was seriously thinking of locking her up till the broods should be a little older, when another event happened, and all was suddenly at peace. The judge's setter came in one morning wagging her tail. She had had her puppies, and she now took us to where they were housed, in between the floor of a building and the hollow ground. Emily was seated on the whole litter. No, I said to the judge, I am not surprised. She is capable of anything. In her new choice of offspring, this hen had at length encountered an unworthy parent. The setter was bored by her own puppies. She found the hole under the house an obscure and monotonous residence compared with the dining room, and our company more stimulating and sympathetic than that of her children. A much petted contact with our superior race had developed her dog intelligence above its natural level, and turned her into an unnatural, neglectful mother, 
who was constantly forgetting her nursery for worldly pleasures. At certain periods of the day she repaired to the puppies and fed them, but came away when this perfunctory ceremony was accomplished, and she was glad enough to have a governess bring them up. She made no quarrel with Emily, and the two understood each other perfectly. I have never seen among animals any arrangement so civilized and so perverted. It made Emily perfectly happy. To see her sitting all day jealously spreading her wings over some blind puppies was sufficiently curious, but when they became large enough to come out from under the house and toddle about in the proud hen's wake, I longed for some distinguished naturalist. I felt that our ignorance made us inappropriate spectators of such a phenomenon. Emily scratched and clucked, and the puppies ran to her, pawed her with their fat limp little legs, and retreated beneath her feathers in their games of hide-and-seek. Conceive, if you can, what confusion must have reigned in their infant minds as to who the setter was. "'I reckon they think she's the wet nurse,' said the Virginian. When the puppies grew to be boisterous, I perceived that Emily's mission was approaching its end. They were too heavy for her, and their increasing scope of playfulness was not in her line. Once or twice they knocked her over, upon which she arose and pecked them severely, and they retired to a safe distance, and sitting in a circle yapped at her. I think they began to suspect that she was only a hen after all. So Emily resigned, with an indifference which surprised me, until I remembered that if it had been chickens she would have ceased to look after them by this time. But here she was again, out of a job, as the Virginian said. She's raised them puppies for that trifling setter, and now she'll be hunting around for something else useful to do that ain't in her business. Now there were other broods of chickens to arrive in the hen-house, and I did not desire any more bantam and turkey performances, so to avoid confusion I played a trick upon Emily. I went down to Sunk Creek and fetched some smooth oval stones. She was quite satisfied with these, and passed a quiet day with them in a box. This was not fair, the Virginian asserted. You ain't going to just leave her fooled that away. I did not see why not. Why, she raised them puppies all right. Ain't she showed she knows how to be a mother anyways? "'Emily ain't going to get her time took up for nothing while I'm round here,' said the cowpuncher. He laid a gentle hold of Emily and tossed her to the ground. She, of course, rushed out among the corrals in a great state of nerves. "'I don't see what good you do meddling,' I protested. To this he deigned no reply, but removed the unresponsive stones from the straw. "'Why, if they ain't right warm!' he exclaimed plaintively. THE POOR DELUDED SON OF A GUN. And with this unusual description of a lady, he sent the stones sailing like a line of birds. "'I'm regular getting stuck on Emily,' continued the Virginian. "'You needn't to laugh. Don't you see she's got sort of human feelings and desires? I always knowed hosses was like people, and my collie, of course. It is kind of foolish, I expect.' but that hen's going to have a real egg directly right now to set on. With this he removed one from beneath another hen. "'We'll have Emily raise this here,' said he, "'so she can put in her time profitable.' 
It was not accomplished at once, for Emily, singularly enough, would not consent to stay in the box whence she had been routed. At length we found another retreat for her, and in these new surroundings, with a new piece of work for her to do, Emily sat on the one egg which the Virginian had so carefully provided for her. Thus, as in all genuine tragedies, was the stroke of fate wrought by chance and the best intentions. Emily began sitting on Friday afternoon near sundown. Early next morning my sleep was gradually dispersed by a sound unearthly and continuous. Now it dwindled, receding to a distance, again it came near, took a turn, drifted to the other side of the house, then evidently whatever it was passed my door close and I jumped upright in my bed. The high tense strain of vibration, nearly but not quite a musical note, was like the threatening scream of machinery, though weaker, and I bounded out of the house in my pajamas. There was Emily, disheveled, walking wildly about, her one egg miraculously hatched within ten hours. The little lonely yellow ball of down went cheeping along behind, following its mother as best it could. What then had happened to the established period of incubation? For an instant the thing was like a portent, and I was near joining Emily in her horrid surprise when I saw how it all was. The Virginian had taken an egg from a hen which had already been sitting for three weeks. I dressed in haste, hearing Emily's distracted outcry. It steadily sounded, without perceptible pause for breath, and marked her erratic journey back and forth through stables, lanes, and corrals. The shrill disturbance brought all of us out to see her, and in the hen-house I discovered the new brood making its appearance punctually. But this natural explanation could not be made to the crazed hen. She continued to scour the premises, her slant tail and its one preposterous feather waving as she aimlessly went, her stout legs stepping high with an unnatural motion, her head lifted nearly off her neck, and in her brilliant yellow eye an expression of more than outrage at this overturning of a natural law. Behind her, entirely ignored and neglected, trailed the little progeny. She never looked at it. We went about our various affairs, and all through the clear sunny day that unending metallic scream pervaded the premises. The Virginian put out food and water for her, but she tasted nothing. I am glad to say that the little chicken did. I do not think that the hen's eyes could see, except in the way that sleepwalkers do. The heat went out of the air, and in the canyon the violet light began to show. Many hours had gone, but Emily never ceased. Now she suddenly flew up in a tree, and sat there with her noise still going. But it had risen lately several notes into a slim, acute level of terror and was not like machinery any more, nor like any sound I ever heard before or since. Below the tree stood the bewildered little chicken, cheeping and making tiny jumps to reach its mother. Yes, said the Virginian, it's comical. Even her egg acted different from anybody else's. He paused and looked across the wide, mellowing plain, with the expression of easy-going gravity so common with him. Then he looked at Emily in the tree, and the yellow chicken. 
"'It ain't so damned funny,' said he. We went in to supper, and I came out to find the hen lying on the ground, dead. I took the chicken to the family in the hen-house. No, it was not altogether funny any more, and I did not think less of the Virginian when I came upon him surreptitiously digging a little hole in the field for her. "'I have buried some citizens here and there,' said he, "'that I have respected less.' And when the time came for me to leave Sunk Creek, my last word to the Virginian was, "'Don't forget Emily.' "'I ain't likely to,' responded the cowpuncher. "'She is just one of them parables.' Save when he fell into his native idioms, which they told me his wanderings had well-nigh obliterated until that year's visit to his home again revived them in his speech, he had now for a long while dropped the sir and all other barriers between us. We were thorough friends, and had exchanged many confidences, both of the flesh and of the spirit. He even went the length of saying that he would write me the Sunk Creek news if I would send him a line now and then. I have many letters from him now. Their spelling came to be faultless, and in the beginning was little worse than George Washington's. The judge himself drove me to the railroad by another way, across the Bowleg Mountains, and south through Balaam's Ranch and Drybone to Rock Creek. "'I'll be very homesick,' I told him. "'Come and pull the latch-string whenever you please,' he bade me. "'I wished that I might. No lotus-land ever cast its spell upon man's heart more than Wyoming had enchanted mine.'" End of chapter 6